Thanks be to God. Well, good to see you all. Thanks for joining us for worship today. Welcome to Solid Rock. If uh, you're new or visiting and I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you. My name's Matt. Um, one of my least favorite games to witness being played among our daughters, and, and in full disclosure, I am not insinuating that I have never been an active participant in this game, but I hate to see it in others. One of my least favorite games to see my daughters playing is the blame game. Maybe you're familiar with it. She did this. She said that. Or the most glorious, she's tattling on me. <laughs> Honey, you're, you're not wrong, but do you realize what you are doing in this moment? The, the following statement is probably one of the least controversial statements I could make. And that is this, that we live in a world that embraces finger-pointing, scapegoating, deflection to our personal and social detriment. We, we live in a world that is increasingly uncomfortable taking personal responsibility, owning mistakes, and admitting wrongs. But not only do we live in that kind of a world, but I fear, and, and this is a fear of myself, I fear that we often have embraced that way of life. And I want to suggest today that as Jesus people, we must, with all of our might and determination, swim against that cultural current for our own health, for the health of the church, but also the health of the world we inhabit. And I think there's something that we learn from the events described in Nehemiah 9 that provides some important insight toward that end. So today, if you're new with us today, we're continuing... Uh, something we started last week, exploring this chapter in Nehemiah and considering some of the anatomical makeup of spiritual renewal. Because broadly speaking, that's what's occurring in this section in Nehemiah. The, the people have started returning from Babylonian exile. The temple has been rebuilt. The wall around the city has been rebuilt. The Torah is once again being embraced by the people. There's all of this physical restoration occurring. And now in chapters 8 and 9, we see a spiritual rebuilding take shape. And it all begins, what we focused on last week, it all begins with a desire to be renewed. They set out with an intent to work toward that purpose, and I think there was an important question for us to consider, and that is, do I desire that? Do I want to be renewed? And not just in theory, but do I genuinely long for new life to continue to take hold of me, to continue to point me towards Christ? And do I long for it enough to intentionally act? If so, how might I habituate myself to work toward that reality. Last week, we considered a first possible step in that endeavor, one that Ezra and Nehemiah lead the people into, and that is intentional and prolonged expressions of both sorrow in the face of the reality of our sin and exuberant joy in light of God's never-ending mercy and covenant faithfulness to his people. Renewal requires, I think, living in that tension of both joy and sorrow. The next step toward renewal that I think is potentially highlighted in this story is a willingness to face 
confess and repent of our sin. And as we read this section, we're, we're going to be spending a couple of weeks reading it. We'll pause next week as Austin is going to be teaching for us, and then we'll resume looking at this prayer in two weeks. But I think as we read this prayer, we're going to find some unique features in the confession the people offer that provides for us a way forward into holistic and healthy practices of confession. St. Augustine famously said that the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. I think it's also where any spiritual renewal begins. A degree of introspection coming to terms with what's really going on in here. So the people of Israel here, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, in the midst of this spiritual renewal, and they're, they're grappling with sort of that perennial question that God's people in nearly every era deal with, after so much repeated failure, what is the nature of our relationship with God now? I mean, it seems like we're on the upswing. It seems like things are improving. We're back in our homeland, rediscovering some of the forgotten aspects of our identity we are rehearsing this covenant between God and our ancestors, rededicating ourselves to that covenantal identity. This is who we are, or at least it's who we are called to be. But I think we find that a part of grappling with who we are supposed to be, who, are, who we are called to be, is facing head-on the ways in which we fall short of that identity. We explore all of that through this prayer of confession, a prayer that is presumably led by Ezra, though we're not explicitly told so. But one thing we notice from the beginning in this lengthy prayer of confession, by the way, aside from some of the Psalms, this is the longest recorded prayer in our scriptures. But one thing we notice, I think, is the breadth of their confession. It is all-encompassing. I, I think it's helpful to widen the lens as we think about confession as a practice we pursue. Because confession, at least biblical confession, is not limited to me. It's not limited to the things I have done wrong in the immediate past. I want to suggest that we can't reduce it to, to nothing more than this personal hoop I must jump through to ensure my personal relationship with God is right. I think that is certainly a part of confession, but the content of the confession we read in Nehemiah 9 is much more broad. Likewise, I think the benefits of confession in general are much more broad than just this transactional affair between us and God. But we get ahead of ourselves. It does begin with some personal confession. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. This is the, the section we read last week. We're returning to it in verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. Now already, first few words, we, we bump into a, a difficult idea to parse out. They, they separated themselves from the foreigners. Remember, they, they have just returned to their land, and this is a tension that they are trying to wrestle with. We've spent decades in exile. Now we are back in our home. How do we wrestle with our identity in this complex reality? 
Now, one thing I think we have to remember is that when we read these historical books in our scriptures, just because we are told the people of God do something does not mean that this is a standard that we must cling to and apply. Um, some things we are told this is what happened just because that's what happened. Maybe not necessarily because God instructed them to do this. So I think it's helpful to keep that in our minds. But even back at the beginning of Ezra, there, there seems to be this belief among the people that their spiritual renewal is going to hinge upon them becoming a separate people again. And, and not just religiously, it seems, but ethnically as well. Which, of course, with the benefit of the rest of the story, we know that that was never the end goal. In fact, the prophets, time and time again, envision a time when not only all the tribes of Israel will unite together in the kingdom, but also all, all nations and all peoples would gather to worship Israel's God. The end goal is that the doors and the gates would not be shut, preventing entrance, but that the doors would be wide open to all peoples. At the same time, in the context of this confession, perhaps there is uh, another complexity to think about. In, in some ways, what is taking place for these people is an in-house affair. We're dealing with our stuff, and there's a lot of stuff to deal with. Perhaps there is something about confession that is done with the group itself that acknowledges the onus is on us. We're going to take responsibility for our actions. I'm not going to confess my sin while simultaneously pointing my finger and saying, well, in my defense, you did X, Y, and Z. So I, I don't know. Perhaps separation could have a function in that context. But I think the point of what we read in Nehemiah here is not the separation the point is the acknowledgement of personal failure. As T. Swift says, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. That's T. Swift, right? I'm not a Swifty, but we'll, we'll go there. There's a scene from the Brothers Karamats, which this is an, this is an odd transition from <laughs> T. Swift to Dostoevsky. I'm not a Swifty, but I am a Dosty, so... Um, there's a scene in, in the Brothers Karamazov where Father Zosima, who's a, an elder from the local monastery in the story, and he's lying on his deathbed and offering his sort, sort of final words of wisdom to the people gathered around him. And, and in a really touching scene, he says this, every day and every hour, every minute, walk round yourself and watch yourself and see that your image is a seemly one. Again, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, not for the sake of image management. This is not pruning up the exterior to make sure everybody thinks we have it all together, but an effort at introspection. What's really going on in here? An effort toward truth-telling. Zosimo goes on to say, above all, don't lie to yourself. The man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others. And having no respect, he ceases to love. 
some pretty dramatic outcomes from a failure to walk around ourselves and to tell the truth to ourselves. Walk around yourself. Tell the truth about what you find. Confession, I think, as a discipline, is an act that helps us do exactly that. But, unfortunately, in my estimation anyway, it is a dying art. It is a practice that I think must be rediscovered as the church and as individual followers of Jesus if we hope to experience spiritual renewal. And I think it's a dying art for a couple of reasons. First of all, as we talked about at the beginning of our time today, we are shaped by a culture that embraces blame shifting and finger pointing as a means of offloading personal responsibility and any personal complicity I may have. So often we simply aren't comfortable acknowledging that we could be at fault. But I think perhaps there is an even more fundamental religious reason. You know, the the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers reminds us that all followers of Jesus can function in a priestly role. Not just me. All followers of Jesus can function in a priestly role. Ministers are not the only ones able to hear confession and pronounce absolution. So I think at times there is a genuine concern Well, we we don't want to insinuate that a priest or a minister is the one who mediates between God and humans, that a minister is the one who makes that relational connection possible. You know, in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, he insists there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. We we confess that Jesus alone mediates, restores relationship between the Father and humans. Confession of sin, I think we are taught, is an important part of that relational dynamic. Personal confession to God in prayer is undoubtedly a part of spiritual renewal. We confess our sins to God in prayer. My concern, though, is that when we limit confession of sin to our personal, private prayer time, we sacrifice some incredible benefits confession provides. First of all, there is something liberating about voicing our sin in the presence of a brother or sister something that weakens the power sin has in our lives. Sin, I think, thrives undercover. Confession exposes it, thereby weakening the power it has over us. Secondly, when we confess our sins to a brother or sister and audibly hear words of absolution or words of assurance, words of forgiveness, we we heard words like that a few moments ago after our confession of sin. When we audibly hear those words of assurance, in my experience, there is something beautiful that takes place in here. There is something really important about Hearing that pronouncement, your sins are forgiven. Now, obviously, Jesus has the power to forgive sin. So 
when we confess sin to another person um, and hear that pronouncement, we understand that individual is not the one making that relational connection with God possible. But if, when, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see Jesus repeatedly going around pronouncing forgiveness of sins for people. Sometimes even people who didn't confess sin. Sometimes even people who didn't ask for said forgiveness. Jesus is repeatedly pronouncing your sins are forgiven. There is something, I think, really important about hearing that reality that we know to be true in Jesus Christ, hearing that pronounced over us, to know that we have sinned, to experience deep sorrow for that sin, what we focused on last week, to confess it with the intent of turning from it, and then actually to hear the words, daughter, son, your sins are forgiven. When we don't confess sin, To other followers of Jesus, I think we miss out on this beautiful expression of God's grace to us. And I think it is potentially one of the many reasons so many experience constant and devastating shame for sins committed years ago and that there's been repentance and there's been change, but still we are saddled with shame. I think confessing our sins to one another and hearing words of absolution helps enable us to let go of unnecessary shame and move into freedom from sin. So as we think about confession, we've got this track that we're following. It is personal. We confess our sins, both to God in prayer and to our brothers and sisters. But here in Nehemiah 9, it doesn't end there. We notice in this confession of sin that it doesn't stop with personal or even contemporary sins. It is personal and current. I have sinned in these ways in the not-too-distant past, but it's also communal and historic. We see it in verse 2. They separate themselves, they stand and confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers confess their sins, and they confess the sins of their ancestors. We'll look at some of that historic failure next week, look at some of the details. But just a glimpse into what awaits down in verse 16, they and, they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. We see them confessing in detail, we're going to see, they confess the sins of their ancestors. And I don't think this is a confession that is a shifting of the blame. Like, I'm confessing this, but it's just who I am. I mean, it's in my genes. Look at my ancestors. I can't help it. I I can't develop or change because these tendencies are baked into my very being. If you don't like something about me, don't blame me. Just blame my ancestors. I don't think this is an effort at shifting the blame, but rather an effort to simply acknowledge that I am a product of a variety of systems that are sinful in many ways. I'm not guilty of the sins of my ancestors. I don't confess them to receive forgiveness for those sins. 
I'm not confessing those sins to sort of break some generational curse or something like that. But if I don't recognize and admit that I am a product of sinful people and sinful systems and environments that make it possible for sin to continue thriving, if I don't acknowledge that, I am bound to repeat the sins of my ancestors. As Pete Scazzaro poignantly said, Jesus may be in your hearts, but Grandpa is in your bones. <laughs> it's true. It is so possible for us to be so sucked in by the gravitational pull of our unique family systems that we can't even imagine a way of life outside of that environment. And not imagining a life outside of that in sort of a dissociative way where I, I reject my history, but I do want to be willing to objectively, as far as I am able, evaluate the particulars of the environment I was raised in, some of it may be very good and laudable, and we can hold on to that. But I think we will all discover some of it is unhealthy. Some of it is sinful and must be left behind. Scazzaro went on to say this, Emotionally healthy spirituality is about embracing God's choice to birth us into a particular family, in a particular place, at a particular moment in history. That choice granted to us certain opportunities and gifts. It also handed to us a certain amount of emotional baggage in our journey through life. For some of us, this load was minimal. For others, it turned out to be a very, one, a very heavy one to carry. And I think wherever we find ourselves on this spectrum, I, th I think all of us can, can walk through this exercise, and it can be a really healthy one. Wherever we find ourselves on this spectrum of, of health and a lack of health, I think it's really helpful to acknowledge. Perhaps spiritual maturity involves being able to recognize the sins and dysfunction of my ancestors without demonizing them, or without trying to paint myself as their moral superior in every conceivable way. That's not what it's about. But, but here's a really sobering thought for me. Our children are also going to repent of their ancestors' sins. That, that's me. I don't like to think about that, but I think it's true. There are many ways in which I am a part of sinful systems that I don't even recognize, and I'm sure our children are going to be able to highlight and identify those. In some ways, they already have. But one reason, um, confessing the sins of our ancestors, again, this is not about a lack of honor. This is not about rejecting our history. But it is necessary if we hope to wrestle with our past and how we have been in systems that perpetuate specific sins. And if I want to pursue spiritual health, I must be willing to deal with it, to face it. I think this is one reason we we want to think about horrors that have occurred throughout history, despite the discomfort. It's one reason we 
think about and study atrocities like the Holocaust and, and continue to hear those stories and learn from them, or even closer to home, it's, it's the reason we want to face sins uh, like, like racism in our country's past. We want to face the horrors that have been committed. We want to sit with the weight of it. Not because we're personally responsible, but if we don't acknowledge and confess the sins of those who have gone before us, it is so easy for us to find ourselves falling into those same traps. And I think confession offers us a path out of those systems. We'll press pause here. We'll pick this up again in two weeks. But for now, renewal, process of spiritual renewal continues with confession. And there are a host of benefits. Provides accountability, which leads to honest community. You know, Richard Foster has said that one of the biggest hurdles that prevents persistent practices of confession is that we view our communities of faith as uh, fellowship of saints before we understand it as a fellowship of sinners. And in so doing, we convince ourselves that everybody else in the community has it all together and is living perfectly in line with Christ. And so we avoid confession because we don't want to be outed as the only one who struggles in a sea of perfect people. And tragically, our avoidance of Confession only perpetuates that thought and perpetuates the sinful patterns in which we remain stuck. So confession for us enables genuine, vulnerable community because honesty leads to a deep level of trust. Confession begins to bring liberation from sinful patterns we find ourselves in. It helps keep pride at bay. It is a practice of renewal through and through. And I want to today invite you to join me in pursuing this as a way of life. Walk around ourselves. Find what's really going on. Look at ourselves as objectively as possible, making sure that the image we find is a seemly one, not so that we just look good, but so that we are dealing with the junk that's in here. Thanks be to God. I want to invite you to stand. We're going to celebrate today around the table of our Lord. As we think about this centerpiece in the Christian story, the centerpiece in our weekly gathering, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, as we reflect upon that today, we are reminded again of the many ways in which we are sinful people that are products of sinful systems. But this morning we are reminded, we, we don't end there, we are reminded that there is forgiveness and mercy in Jesus Christ. What's left for us to do but accept it? To receive a gift that we could never earn with open hands, and trusting hearts. I invite you to feast in this meal around the table. You'll hear the words spoken over you as you come forward, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive. 
knowing your sins are forgiveness, for forgiven. Release the shame you feel and trust the gift of mercy Jesus offers. I want to say a prayer. I'll invite you forward. We'll make two lines down these center aisles. You can take the elements on, on your own. Um, let, let's say a prayer by way of invitation. Lord Jesus, as we continue to reflect on these stories from the history of your people, a really messy history, a lot of failure, a lot of suffering, but this constant question, what is our relationship like now? Maybe that is a question that some in this room are wrestling with. Ask that you would speak to their hearts and their minds. Reveal to them your welcoming embrace, your steadfast love, your never-ending mercy. As we go from here to pursue lives of confession and repentance, of honesty with ourselves and with others, pray that this would be a practice that opens us up to new health. And so we pray, Almighty God, give us the increase of faith, hope, and love. And that we may obtain what you have promised. Make us love what you command. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?